This is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you are listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 51, Exogenesis. And the next episode will be titled Exo Exodus. Uh huh. <laughs> yes, welcome to yet another in a string of JMS episodes where the title doesn't really tell us anything <laughs> before we see the episode or after we see the episode. <laughs> but hey, uh, it's exciting to watch because I, once again, I had no idea what was coming. And just because <laughs> we are baffled by the title should not prejudice you one way or the other on how we feel about the episode. We'll get true. there. <laughs> this is true. Uh, but we have uh, JMS writing it and uh, director Kevin J. Kremen back, who has done A Spider in the Web, Confessions and Lamentations, Matters of Honor, to give us what feels sort of like a throwback to season one and early season two with um, monster or mystery of the week sort of episodes. Uh, this story does not focus on some of the overall plot elements that we've seen develop, um, although I think there's a few mentions here and there to sort of tie it all together. But it really does focus on an A-plot that doesn't seem to have much to do with the rest of the story. True enough. Yeah, it's it, 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 does, have, it does have Star Trek about it. It really does. Although, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> We will get there. I, I we think will we will all have some opinions. <laughs> yep. we, the, the, the motto for this episode of the podcast is, we'll get there. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, on, on the plus side, I think um, JMS sees the opportunity for um, letting characters interact that we don't necessarily see interact very often. Um, and, of course, letting some characters who do interact on a regular basis interact some more. And uh, and in some cases, I think hilarity sort of ensues. Yeah. Oh, and Marcus Probably. was in this one. Marcus. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's in the credits and everything. And he's in this episode. Yeah. Aragorn's <laughs> back. <laughs> uh, yeah, Stephen was very pleased about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm uh, before I know that you're champing at the bit, Shannon, to get to the uh, recap and all this other stuff. But Erica, I must tell you that I'm ready to throttle your husband over call- him calling him Aragorn. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, as a matter of Come fact, on, somebody, you liked Space Mob. Somebody, somebody referred to him as Marcus when he was off screen talking about him. And Stephen was like, it took me a while to figure out who they were talking about. <laughs> I was like, yes, they're not calling him Aragorn on the show, dear. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's get started uh, with what you need to know if, for some odd reason, this is your first episode of watching Babylon 5 with us. As relations on an intergalactic scale continue to be shaky, Babylon 5 continues to serve one of its purposes as a major travel hub. A conspiracy has formed among the command staff to try and combat both the powerful aliens known as Shadows and the corrupting influence in EarthGov back home. In this episode, as he continues to build a network of contacts, Marcus discovers something worrying happening in Down Below. He can't get Garibaldi to help, not his department, but Dr. Franklin agrees to come along. The two are captured and learn that there is an ancient alien race, the Vindrizi, whose sole purpose is to witness and record all of history, but they need hosts in order to survive. Marcus's friend Duncan convinces them to let the Vindrizi hosting humans leave and continue their mission. 
Meanwhile, Sheridan asks Ivanova to feel out the newly promoted Lieutenant Corwin for inclusion in their war council. While she gets the answers she needs, poor Corwin misunderstands her intentions, leading to a little comedy of errors between himself and Ivanova and Marcus, who is also smitten with her. And that is the basic bones of exogenesis. When you put it that way, man, it's kind of amazingly simple, isn't it? <laughs> it really yeah. is. Yeah, yep. this is this is something that I think JMS tried to do on a regular basis, especially early on with Babylon 5, before he had to focus on the major story arc he wanted to tell, where he would pick some science fiction trope that everybody's done and everybody knows how it goes and everybody knows how it's going to end. And then he'd try to turn it on his ear. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, in this case, the, the Vendrizi, the idea of, you know, oh, alien parasites, oh, they're taking over and their purpose is very, very bad. Uh, and oh, panic now. And then in his case, trying to turn it around that the people who are hosting these aliens are number one, volunteers, and number two, serving what is ultimately a noble purpose, um, although we don't get enough information to know whether the Vendrizi are, you know, if they're waiting for another dark age, we don't know that they're going to share their information when the time comes or not. Yeah. There's um, actually no bad guy in this episode. That's Whoa. true. You're yeah. right. <laughs> that, that in itself is kind of different, kind of original. That, yeah. That had not, uh, had not occurred to me. So it's not an yeah, act. You know, Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, at the end of it, you know, Stephen just sat back and said, well, that was pleasant enough and made better by the presence of British actors. So (laughs) (laughs) this is that he was he was thrilled at the beginning of this to uh, to see in the credits that Aubrey Morris was in it because we finally, finally have our first Doctor Who link because Aubrey Morris was in Doctor Who. He was in Earthshock and Stephen was was he was just like, you know, it's about time. Was really okay because I actually wondered after I started looking at the different actors who had guested and look at their credits. Two out of three of the ones I I picked, Murder She Wrote, including Aubrey Morris. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, he when he I saw he was in a Clockwork Orange. Um, you know, so I started looking very carefully. Um, his Internet Movie Database doesn't list Doctor Who because I started yeah. thinking he would be ideal as you know he, this would be an obvious thing for for someone of his age and his experience to do, but he wasn't he wasn't listed. Yeah, I just noticed that. I was actually looking myself, but I don't know where Stephen looked it up, but apparently okay, he found then. it. Hmm. All right. My instincts were right then. Yeah. Well, right hooray. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I, I thought, and I guess if we want to talk for a minute about our guest actors, um, I thought I thought he did a very good job. I loved his interactions with Marcus toward the beginning, and I thought he, you know, for the for what it was for the part, I thought he did a pretty good job. I, I would agree. He was he was he he was. There was a little hamminess when he was not well. I thought that his um, his sick acting was a little over, a little overdone, perhaps. I thought he was neat and ever so slightly creepy when the when he was uh, sort of sharing space with a Vendrizi. But mm-hmm. uh, I thought I, I thought he was good, and I thought he had pretty good chemistry with uh, Marcus. Uh, but since you're bringing up the English accent stuff, why is it that Marcus, who's who comes from a mining colony and stuff, why is it is it just because he has a British accent that he is fluent in Shakespeare? I'm just asking. <laughs> 
I I think it's because JMS wanted to make the character stand out very quickly and threw in a lot of these things that he's, you know, like, like there's two different characters in this episode call Mark as a madman. And I think part of that is, you know, him throwing throwing quotes around from from classic classic earth literature that they yes they both happen to be british um but but yeah i think that's i think that's jms trying to show just how outside the lines outside the box marcus can be i guess i just feel like it sort of uh leans it leans into a bit of a american television stereotype if you've got a posh british accent you must know shakespeare you know you're probably right um but I, I don't care. Like it just made me love him so much more. Uh, yeah, have, it, it's such an it's such point. an easy stereotype to love, I guess. <laughs> but yep. And you know what? And he I does was it wrong. well. I was Mark- I was wrong. I'm actually digging here, and I think maybe I just misunderstood what Stephen said. It wasn't Aubrey Morris that was in that was in Doctor oh. Who. It was uh, James Warwick, uh, oh, Matthew, okay. Matthew Duffin, um, who was in uh, Earthshock. So I think Stephen may have. Uh, I okay. have said that, and I misunderstood. But yeah, Aubrey Morris totally would have fit. I think I knew him from uh, Deadwood. That was where I recognized him okay. from. Yeah, and, and I don't believe, I was mixing up, when I was right, jotting down notes, I was mixing up characters left and right among the guest stars for a little bit myself. So, mm-hmm. um, Well, that, and you know, think, we did have a lot of them. Um, several did. Several of the Vendrizzi uh, hosts had speaking roles and had things to do. We had uh, we had the two apparent ringleaders. We had the ranger. Samuel. Samuel. Um, you know, it, yeah. it, it, I don't it, think he was a ranger. I think no. he was just one of Marcus's contacts. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, but, really, I thought we got, well, I don't want to say we got lucky because I'm sure somebody did the work to hire all of these actors. But I feel <laughs> like this was much better overall as far as the quality of, of all of these, you know, some of these people only had one or two lines. And quite often in Babylon 5, when you have somebody who has one or two lines, they're like, uh, like, well, for example, in this episode, they're like the woman who had the stall next to Duncan's, who had mm-hmm. two lines and delivered them very flatly and not so well. But everybody else, all of the Vindrizi folks were... I mean, at first, it kind of seemed like they were maybe bad actors because they were just sort of being so intense and their affect was a little bit different. But, but nope, then they're aliens. you find out <laughs> that's on purpose. <laughs> so it works. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's what I was going to bring up um, after Chip's comment about how well um, Aubrey Morris did uh, portraying Duncan before and then Duncan during his possession. And I'm just like, and then the light bulb went off in my head. Okay, yes, this is why they're all being so sort of monotone and flat because this is because they're carrying these parasites. Well, the parasite's not exactly the right word, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so that that explained that and that made me feel a bit better about their performances as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it was probably a, a directing choice to have them be that way and not... Honestly, it it really worked for me. It, so I was I was fine with it. I think the maybe the only sort of like chink in the armor there was the fact that Duncan did not really have the same sort of flat affect that everybody else did when he had he he acted slightly differently, but it wasn't quite to the same degree that everybody else was. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And it, so the difference between him, you know, before, during, and after was not as marked as I would have expected it to be, considering how everybody else acted very similar to each other, just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, straight-faced and, and serious. And Duncan's character was the only one who was an outlier. But I was willing to just sort of hand wave that away because I thought it was effective and it mm-hmm. worked. Yeah. And he was yeah. sort of, you know... I mean- it did. He he was recently assimilated or whatever, so maybe True. it takes a little while for the affect to come mm-hmm. in. Yeah, and or you could also headcanon that um, this was like Duncan the man trying to help this Vindrizi get through to Marcus. I trust him. I know this yeah. guy. We can work with him. So there, there's different ways that you can wave the hands. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, having talked about the acting in this plot. What about the plot itself? Um, like we said, I, I feel like it takes the idea of the, the evil alien parasite that is so common in so many stories uh, and tries to turn it on its ear. Uh, but as I started poking around, you know, Chip had mentioned um, in the Star Trek II movie, the original one, uh, Chekhov apparently, hey, Walter Koenig, uh, getting brain, <laughs> getting bugs in his brain through the ear or something. Mm-hmm. Um, what I had thought of was in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, the introduction of the, the trill, the, the hosts that, that join with um, – th- that there's the, the thing and then the person who's the shell for the thing um, mm-hmm. that we've got. Like in Deep Space Nine, Jedzia Dax, they expand on that biology a whole lot more, I think. But it turns out that the concept was introduced in the host in 1991. So that was before – um, Babylon 5 before this aired. Um, so I was just wondering if you guys thought that the, the twist was that original or is it long enough ago and we've seen people play with this concept enough that these days it's not as original? Any ideas? Um, it's kind of a cliched skeleton of a plot by then and it keeps on and, and it's 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 well-worn territory so i think what jms is trying to do in this episode is trying to come up with a twist on the cliche and in this case the twist is that uh the aliens are benevolent the the big reveal is that everybody volunteered um mm-hmm. and if the vendrizi had been more open about it we we assume that they they do what they do because you know these these younger races uh, wouldn't understand so they're just working they're just accustomed to working around them and things like that but really that's the that's the only big surprise of the episode is that everybody volunteered and that's that makes it kind of neat but you know when you described Stephen as saying that it was a pleasant episode yeah that's almost damning with faint praise because there's not a whole lot of consequence and weight to the thing it's more like a meditation on you know misunderstanding uh the other and things like that it's it's nice to have an episode that doesn't have a bad guy but it's it's pleasant it's nice <laughs> you know it and and yes that description does sort of sound like damning it with faint praise but i really don't think that that steven meant it that way and and, and neither do i i think as far as i don't think the, the freshness of the idea is what is important here because i mean in science fiction there are very few new ideas so mm-hmm. so maybe not maybe they aren't all as well worn as this one is but uh I didn't get the impression that that JMS was really going for a big twist, just that he was sort of using using an interesting 
you know, a meditation on it actually really is a good description on it. It's an mm-hmm. interesting, interesting backdrop in order to put our characters in front of to basically, you know, kind of introduce a new character. I mean, this is the first time that we've delved into Marcus very much. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of front and center. And it's, I, I think it was just an enjoyable backdrop in what before which to watch the rest of it sort of play out. And I mean, Stephen said he enjoyed the episode. He said that it was, it surprised him. Um, So, I mean, he didn't mention like big twist, but he did find it surprising. He said, B5 resolutions surprise me pleasantly. I always expect them to go the Star Trek route and they don't, Uh, you know, either by killing children or by allowing weird parasites (laughs) to coexist with humans. That was was the way he put it. so this sounds kind of like what uh, JMS maybe intended. Uh, he's quoted on the Lurker's Guide as saying that I like to take stories that have always been done one way and then turn them on their heads to see what new possibilities tumble out. Uh, for him, it's fun. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see mm-hmm. if that's the kind of reaction that Stephen was feeling that maybe mission accomplished. Yeah, yep. but more than but I think more important than that, uh, as far as this story is concerned, is I think you're right, Erica. It's sort of a scaffolding that's set up upon which we learn more about our characters. Uh, we learn a lot mm-hmm. more about Marcus. We yeah. learn uh, we learn more about um, Lieutenant David Corwin, um, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a, that, and we learn more about our sort of conspiracy on Babylon 5 and how it deals with how it's continuing to deal with the really nasty position they're all in. You know, your A plot is Marcus and Franklin. Your B plot is and it's not even so much a plot as a, you know, character study uh, is um Ivanova and uh, Corwin. And uh, I think that's the I think that's the most important part of the episode, learning more about these characters and how they interact, especially Marcus, because you're right. um, This is the big I'm not Kefir episode. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Because Marcus has depth. He's, uh, you know, the Shakespeare stuff still drives me a little crazy, but Marcus has depth. (laughs) He's read a book. We don't know that Keffer's ever read a book. Um, uh, he he forms friendships with people in Down Below, and he's really offended when Garibaldi gets his not my problem on. Um, he is a romantic. He's attracted to Ivanova. We find that out. Um, he is scheming and conniving, and he is also, um, uh, you know, he's he's not just the muscle. Uh, as he's sitting in the um, in the down below bar, you know, meeting with his contacts and coordinating stuff and talking about orders from Ranger One on Mimbar, you know, he's middle management. Marcus is he's clever too. I like I like that about him. He's not just the muscle. You're absolutely right, Chip. Um, you know, I like the fact that everybody everybody decides he's a pain in the ass, which is true. Uh, but he's mm-hmm. a pain in the ass. Or who a kind of knows, Yeah. Yes, both. He knows what he's doing. He's his his line about uh, what is it? One from two makes one or whatever, or one from three makes one, which is mm-hmm. you know ridiculous math, but ends up kind of working because you know getting them to to shake the the quarter staff, the fighting and, pike, yeah. yep, knock himself out, and he's he's able to make it make it all work for him only because they're terrible guards because that other guy should not have been close enough to the jail cell to uh, to <laughs> wrestle down. But hey, are. still, he they he he recognized what crappy guards they were and used that to his advantage. 
And, and then and then Mark, I, it's just a small thing, but I just love you know Marcus does the thing with the with the fighting pike and all this stuff. But he takes the guns, he takes the guns, and he goes in with like two six shooters with his cape billowing behind him. It's so Deadwood. It's so <laughs> Eastwood, and and it's kind of funny because you know the flowing black hair, and I'm very English, but uh, you know he 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 goes in like um, anime badass. Mm-hmm. He's chaotic good. Yes. I mean, he's totally impetuous, too. Like, as soon as he sees the weird webbing around that hole in the the wall in Duncan's quarters, he zips right through it. He doesn't even hesitate. Yeah. (laughs) After this. Drags poor Franklin along with him. Yeah. Um, You know, the opening, uh, the opening uh, when the command staff is in Earhart's. And um, sort of Franklin's the only one who's like, well, where's Marcus? Shouldn't he be here? And everybody else is, you know, doesn't really trust him yet. You know, he's here. Yeah, I think that's emphasized. And, you know, not only do we get to know Marcus better, but at the moment we're learning his position in things, which is at the moment he he does not fit EarthGov's side of yeah. everything that they're doing. He's not wearing a badge. Uh Sheridan trusts him because he's sort of in this ranger chain of command that uh, Delin has recently involved him in. But Garibaldi, and Garibaldi's uh, sort of involved as a liaison as well. But Ivanova, no. And uh, Sheridan makes the sensible decision that, you know, he is separate. He is, you know, people will ask a whole lot of questions if all of a sudden this guy in a funny cape is hanging around with us. You know, it's. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I like that development. I also like that, uh, you know, we saw the, we have seen as this season has gone on, we've seen Ivanova. She was, she was, as Marcus says in this episode, she was relatively friendly with him, um, in mm-hmm. matters of honor the, when Marcus is introduced and then she cools off and we don't necessarily get an explanation of that, but we, you know, the characters notice when, other characters are behaving inconsistently. And I like that. I like that. Mm-hmm. And we do get a pretty decent explanation of it as coming from one of Ivanova's friends. So we get Dr. Franklin saying, oh, it's, you know, she's friendly at first, but now you're one of the team. So it's going to take her a little while to warm up. And I like I like that. I like that mm-hmm. her character is built out well enough for that to, to be a possible reason. That's a pretty deep deep character building reason and that dr franklin's character is good enough friends with her and an insightful enough individual to recognize something like that and point it out to marcus it's all Mm -hmm. i mean there's just on every side of it that you look at you get fully fleshed out characters doing things that actual characters would do actual people would do it's lovely here's something uh, else i love about babylon 5 when you trap two characters in confined space Yes. <laughs> a conversation ensues. It's it always it always plays out well. I think uh, this is another. I, those two together make me just very happy. I was, you know, it just seems like an unlikely pairing because you mm-hmm. have 
Marcus, who is kind of the the action hero, he's the ranger, he's he's the the sneaky guy, I guess, who's you know hanging around in bars and and getting information from from lowly contacts in Down Below. And then we take the doctor, who yes, he's he's had his time in Down Below, you know, with his little clinic and stuff in, in the past, but uh, it just seems like a weird pairing and not something that I would have expected. So to have those two be put together, because Garibaldi washes his hands of the situation, it's mm-hmm. it's neat to see how they play off each other. And I love Dr. Franklin's character. He's so, he's, you know, he's not laid back when it comes to his his morals and medicine and that sort of thing. But when you get him out of uh, med lab, he tends to be much more of a laid back, relaxed, just kind of a chill guy. And I think it's neat to see that his reaction to somebody like Marcus, who is just kind of bonkers, really, uh, and and He's not insane. somebody like, yeah, <laughs> you know, where you Garibaldi Ivanova. knows we're coming, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had Ivanova just sort of really bouncing off of him harshly. You get somebody who's who's happy to just sort of sit back and shake his head like Stephen is and just be like, wow, yeah, you're something, man. I like <laughs> it. Yeah, something cute that I thought, not cute, but clever, that I thought JMS did with his dialogue in bouncing off of these characters are a bit. At one point, Marcus tells Stephen, you care too much. You can't pull off the bluff. Mm-hmm. And a couple of minutes later, you have Duncan telling Marcus, you did what you did because you care. So mm-hmm. it's like the other other characters identify something in the character that they don't necessarily identify with themselves yet, which I thought was kind of so neat. Nice. Yeah. You know, even Steven, uh, my Steven, was was enjoying enjoying him. I, I kind of wondered every time they add a character onto Babylon 5 and, you know, they're in the credits and Steven gets upset and... <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't see him enough. So I was worried. I was like, okay, is he going to be biased now because he's been in the credits for so many episodes and hasn't been on screen very much? Uh, but no, uh, at the end, Stephen said, I like this Aragorn. He's he's like a poor man's Paul McGann, uh, but he's being a real space hero in this one. So it's, it's yeah, a poor man's Paul McGann. I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. It's a great Marcus episode. Um, and... Um, Right, right from the the conversation with uh, Duncan, all the way to the end, to the um, Rose delivery. Um, he, he he's he's just delightful. He is a delightful mm. character. He is the antithesis of Warren Keffer. Yep. Stephen laughed right. out loud at the flowers thing at the end. This was this was a really good laugh out loud episode for him when it came yeah, to so, the stuff. Yeah. And that there's happened. that the the comedy of errors. <laughs> yep. Before we Back get to in- that, the the one last thing I wanted to point out about the um, the the Duncan plot was sure. the what I thought, and maybe you guys can tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong. It, what I thought was a blatant homage to Blade Runner and the tears and rain speech. Oh yes. Yes. Because you get, you know, flame birds dying on Orion 7, whereas you have, you know, attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion in Blade Runner. So mm-hmm. it's like, hmm, I'm yes, picking that Yes, that was up. a definite nod. Um, I also think there's a line of dialogue thrown in there that is a nod to A Clockwork Orange, which Aubrey Morris uh, starred in. So, yeah, I think there's a couple ah. of um, throwbacks. Nice. Yes. Um, I have one more comment to ask you guys about um, the parasite uh, thing before we move on that occurred to me as you guys were talking. I had put in our notes um, sort of noticing just how human-centric 
this whole episode was. Uh, the only aliens we see are the ones sort of in the background in the crowd scenes. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel a little bit like that emphasized something about the episode. Um, the, yes, it's not an arc-heavy episode, but still um, kind of made it all feel sort of closed in. But would it have added anything to the Vendrizi storyline if we had seen any other aliens carrying them? Or does it... Yes. Okay. Yes. I I, I think that would have been a good move. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, you know, honestly, most of the denizens of Down Below that we have seen have been human. I know there are some others, you know, here and there. But I think the impression that I have gotten socioeconomically from Babylon 5 at this point is that it's mostly humans that are coming to this human-run station to try to work and Mm -hmm. finding that they can't and then don't have enough money to make it home and just end up living on the outskirts. And since the Vendrizi are pulling all of their hosts from the folks in Down Below, I think, I mean, I guess it would have made sense to possibly have one or two aliens in there, but it might have stretched credulity a little bit if it would have been more than just just one, I think, because most of the, you know, you think probably it's it's like a word of mouth recruiting sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So the it, it's going to be the people that you hang with that you that you yeah. pull to the cause. Yeah, I just wonder, like I said, it just sort of hit me that, you know, if this, if these Vendrizi are indeed, you know, half a million, half a billion, however, however many was it years old, and have been going across the galaxy the entire time, then it makes total sense that, and and as they specifically say, something else that leaped out at me was the idea of them being genetically neutral. That was a mm-hmm. bit of tech speak of like, uh, okay, yeah, sure, whatever you say. <laughs> um, They're just... They're just CGI goo. Uh, Stephen yeah. thought it looked like the the master snake from the Paul McGann Doctor Who movie. So two <laughs> call two Paul McGann calls out call outs. I there guess. you go. But it just made me wonder. You know that we should have. It felt like to me after I thought about it that maybe we should have, like you said, at least seen one alien involved in the group, or at least referenced a little bit more specifically that they had been riding with um, other races uh, beforehand to make it. I don't know, just to make it hang together a little more. Mm-hmm. But that's just me. So my only, my last question about this plot is, you know, one of the things that I like about it so much is the characters, uh, especially Franklin and Marcus, they are so professional. Um, Franklin, you know, doing the autopsy and talk and, and just, I love how, real Babylon 5 feels, especially in the way that these characters aren't just aren't just spandex clad uh, pseudo military people. You know, this is how a med lab facility works. This is how a Minbari um, covert group works and, you know, all this stuff. And the one thing where it all fell down for me was I couldn't figure out how the Vendrizi actually got on the station in the first place. Well, they were on the, trans- the, the transport shuttle. that came in in the first place. Yeah. Except, oh, yeah, but wait a minute. Yeah. You have a I very guess. good point, Chip, because there would have had to have been Vendrizi in those two people mm-hmm. to know that that transport was bringing in the rest of them. Yeah, I guess yeah, it was that, just, that was the know. impression. But and, and yeah, how would they get sm- and how well. would they get smuggled onto the station in the first place? 
You know, well, you can smuggle anything into Babylon Five. That's that's clear. well, you know, they they do at least make an attempt to you know to to check things. You know, they, that's true. But they would if they show up as if they are actually um, what was it genetically neutral? They maybe they wouldn't show up on some sort of like you know biohazard scan. I guess that's true. it's it, that's it. That's the one. That's the one thing where it falls down for me in terms of you know believability, um, suspension of disbelief. There's a lot of good stuff in this episode that makes me feel like this is a real working universe, and you know, mm-hmm. just uh, sneaking the sneaking the bugs on the space station, uh, not quite so much. Well, yeah, can't can't necessarily hit on all cylinders, so in in 45 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. yeah. Okay, because especially since part of the 45 minutes, uh, we do get uh, little tiny bits and pieces uh, sort of keeping us in the loop uh, as far as our major story arcs. Uh, We've got, you know, Sheridan and Ivanova worrying about Corwin's promotion, meaning that he's going to be around more, he's going to be listening more. Do they go ahead and bring him into into their conspiracy for, you know, their own self-protection? Uh, we have Stephen talking about the need for um, using synthetics until they can get more Drazi blood. So apparently the Drazi and Centauri are still fighting and the Drazi are still like coming to Babylon 5 as refugees. Um, Marcus's mentions, of course, uh, as he's meeting with his people of um, the Centauri, the edge of Centauri space becoming a, a sort of border with shadow vessels. Um, so all of these things are still sort of like, you know, dropped in you know, little bit here and there um, just to sort of keep us in in that state of low suspense. Yeah. How did that work for you guys? Oh, very well. Very well. It does. It does feel like there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in the middle of this sort of slice of life episode. Yeah, it actually goes hand in hand with Chip with what you were just saying about it feeling like a real working station because we're seeing bits and pieces of the the day-to-day guts of how things work. I think the tiny bits of, you know, the fact that the arc is still happening in the background, even though it's maybe not the A plot, still makes it feel like this is a real place that we are watching. We are being dropped in the middle of of a, a fully, fully re- realized space station with, with people mm-hmm. thinking and, and doing all things that 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 a real society would be doing this fully operational battle station <laughs> yes there's that yes. <laughs> sorry and you know there's even a bit of time for people to misunderstand one another oh, <sighs> this was delightful i love it i don't i hear you groaning i don't care i'm gonna i'm gonna say good things first um <laughs> Actually, the, the the thing that I have to say that I love the most was at the very, very beginning, before the credit sequence, when they announced that he's being promoted, you know, the camera pans over to him and he's standing by the bar. It, Steven went wild. He was so excited for, the, for, for Corwin to be promoted. He literally, <laughs> he threw his hands in the air. He started cheering out loud and applauding and then demanded to have him in the credits. But... Uh, <laughs> He was like he's. Oh, I don't know great. if this is the new Lou for Steven, but he's a uh, he's a Corwin <laughs> fan. Yep. Well, okay. Corwin is definitely not Lou Welch. I love this because <laughs> this is the you know we've had moments for Corwin's personality to come out, uh, looking uncomfortable as uh, as he's interviewed and Ivanova's watching in the background. You know things like that. Uh, but we get a really good idea of who he is, and Joshua Cox does a great job in this role. I love him. <laughs> His comic yes, timing he- is perfect. 
<laughs> yes, it's when you can get me to say "bless your heart" so many times within a forty-five mm-hmm. minute span, you have definitely co- created a character that I'm feeling. Right. So. But that being said, um, how do you all feel about the whole misinterp comedy of misinterpretation? This thing, because that's a bit of a cr- that's always a bit of cringe for me. It's always a bit of three's company. I will I will agree with the cringiness. I mean, the first time I saw this episode, I was I was hardcore cringing. I think maybe just because I've seen it before and I kind of knew what to expect, it didn't bother me as much, and I I just sort of laughed at, laughed at it. So, so yeah. And I yeah. mean, watching it for the first time, Stephen didn't seem to to find the the cringe factor all that high. He he just kind of laughed along with it. Yeah, I Chip pointed out as we were as we were watching, he just turned to me at one point and said, "You're both cringing and dying of laughter on the inside." And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> Yeah, that's all that can be said. (laughs) What saves it for me is that uh, Corwin, when he's at the when he's at the stall, he doesn't know he's so 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 at least he's not he's not sort of diving into the farce. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's sort of freaking out a bit. He doesn't know how to interpret this. And he is preparing himself for every eventuality. And of course, he chickens out when um, he shows up, yeah. uh, and, and that's and that's appropriate. Uh, that, good reason, that, because you know we get. I think that this is an, another. You know, yes, it's sort of a farce backdrop, but it's just it's showing us our characters and explaining them really well. So you do get him not being completely stupid uh, about it, and then you also get Ivanova saying, "Where the hell did those come from?" Yeah, of course he's going to say, "I just found them on the floor," because he's not <laughs> stupid, as we've seen. Yeah, and yeah. then you know, just a sort of, <laughs> it feels like JMS is like taking a needle and poking a little bit because, you know, she she's going on, you know, oh, what idiot would have spent this much money? And then she pauses and goes, you know, but they're really nice or it's really sweet, you know, and you're just like, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I mean, Corwin's, Corwin's instincts ultimately are true. Don't own up to this. You're not hitting yes. on your boss, you know, you know, <laughs> but he just... He, it's it it's just sort of pitiful, you know. His his instincts are true, but he's he's still this puppy. Oh yeah, yeah. and like when she says, you know, who would have, you know spent that much money must be a real dope, and he just goes, oh, I think so. Yes, it's just like oh, <laughs> oh bless your heart is exactly what I yeah. was thinking. Yeah, and then it sort of flows logically from that into you know Ivanova asking the questions she needs to ask to find out where he stands and you know he's you know very much you know an an earth force soldier and earth force now a lieutenant um you you, you have to follow orders um you know he, mm-hmm. and and she realizes that you know if he, they cannot bring him in um and they're going to have to work around him and that's one of the things that i really liked towards the end was Sheridan and Ivanova's completely wordless conversation you know, he sort of mm-hmm. looks at her, looks at Corwin, basically, have you asked him yet? She gives him the slightest shake of the head. We can't do it. And he looks like disappointed, disgusted. Oh, God, another person we have to hide from. And, and then that, drops that his little, papers. <laughs> yeah, that little tiny bit of acting between um, Box Leitner and Claudia Christian I thought was really good. Really, really yeah. good. And then we get the uh, snare drums as Ivanova <laughs> marches, right. to, marches through the Zocalo. And uh, yeah, keep them. Yeah, and you <laughs> sure? Okay, I, think I, I will. will. <laughs> Guess there is a chance for us after all. That was that was 
yeah, that maybe because I mean that if it wouldn't have been for that perfect bow on the end of it, I think maybe I would be giving that whole thing the more more a little bit more side eye. But the fact that it was so elegantly, we got both of our plot lines sort of tied together in a nice little bow at the end here because you had the conversation between Stephen and and Marcus mm-hmm. talking about Ivanova and Stephen saying, "Oh, you are so not her type." Different galaxies, and then at the end, because of this misunderstanding, you know, it was Stephen who offhandedly mentions something to her about it she puts two and two together and comes up with five which is you know basically that's the perfect math for marcus considering what his math is like (laughs) and then wanders down the hallway and you know well marches down the hallway and gets in the flowers and of course what's he supposed to think it was yeah i felt like it was very we mentioned shakespeare earlier it was the scottish play certainly not a farce but i i felt like this was a nice shakespearean um bow to put on the end yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. nice yeah You know, this is a this is a good episode. This is a good episode. Uh, it's not it's not perfect, and it's not consequential, but it's a good character piece. And we really needed yeah. that for Marcus. It's the perfect timing for that. And we also are bringing up one of the um, lower decks characters and giving him a little bit more to do and a little uh, 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 and he's making him a little less generic and mm-hmm. uh and uh strengthening relationships between Marcus and Franklin and Marcus and Ivanova and uh and ratcheting up Marcus the... and Garibaldi to an extent at least you know they're yeah. they're learning each they're learning each other yeah at this point mm-hmm. um it's i i enjoyed this episode a lot um and it it's Yes, it is pleasant. It is a pleasant episode, and that is not faint praise. No, and you know, I think this is the kind of episode that we would lose if you know if we took Babylon Five and trans transplanted it into the sort of current British type mm-hmm. style of show, where you get you know six or thirteen episodes. Absolutely, you're going to lose something like this. You're not going to have a pleasant, delightful episode where this kind of stuff can just play out and be nice. You have to have you know something of import and a giant bang in every single episode. And and I as as and there's much no room as for the characters to grow. Yeah, as much as that's nice, I think, you know, in a lot of shows that are 22 episodes per season, they do struggle to fill the space because they just don't just don't have the the writing or the the plot sort of for it. But on a show like Babylon 5, where you have this arc that is playing out, like we keep saying, in front of this fully developed space station and this fully developed universe with all of these different characters and stuff, there's so much gold to mine that it's wonderful to be able to have episodes to just, you know, touch on stuff like this. Mm-hmm. I completely Agreed. agree. Can we think of anything else we want to say before we move into spoiler space? I'm just trying to remember how far down the road Exodeuteronomy is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You've got certainly. a whole lot of begats to get through first. Mm. <laughs> okay. All right, then uh, this is our point where we will be moving through a jump gate to talk about what happens in this episode uh, in relation to the future episodes. So if this is your first time around, we invite you to put the podcast away um, until such time as you have finished watching uh, the entire five seasons. Uh, In the meantime, you are more than welcome and encouraged and invited to come to uh, b5audioguide.com and talk to us. The greatest commenters in the world. 
And mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have some fabulous commenters um, pulling out all sorts of wonderful insights. Um, we even have everything divided with, um, you know, spoiler free for those of you who need to talk about what's come before and spoiler full for those of you with um, no fear or who have watched all the episodes to talk about what is to come. Uh, so please join us. You are also uh, invited to uh, chat with us on Tumblr and Twitter. We are on both places at B5 Audio Guide. And your homework for next episode is titled Messages from Earth. Chip will be taking the helm for that one as we get into the middle part of season three. And with that, we're going to hit a jump gate. Okay, and we are back, and we can talk about everything and anything, and confession time. Confession time for me. Um, I totally own the fact that uh, the last few days as we were preparing to watch and record this uh, episode of the podcast, um, I was not looking forward to exogenesis. Oh, same here, same here. I had glanced (laughs) at the audio guide. I was reminded of the parasite thing, and not remembering much more than that. I was just like, oh, do we have to? All the good stuff's coming. It's like the, oh my God, what the F barbecue coming? I want to get to the trilogy. Um, so to rewatch this episode, as Chip said, rem- you know, it helped to remind us all of the great character interaction um, and the building of the characters that does happen in this episode around, yes, a nasty parasite in your spine. So... <laughs> So that was that, that. That is my confession. I have sinned. No, no, no. I'm I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I thought I thought that this was going to be a dreadful episode, um, but it pales in compa- it pales so badly in comparison to messages from Earth, point of no return, and severed dreams that I think it gets a real short end of the stick, um, and that you know. It is so important that we get to know Marcus better before things just ramp up into high gear. So mm-hmm. um, I, I love this episode far more now that I've seen it and now and remembering what's coming. You know, it's 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 an episode that I never really went back to. Yeah, and once I kind of, you know, watched enough to remember what it was and and realized, oh, this is the one with the you know parasites being absorbed into bodies and stuff and. I was. I even had a little bit of that same thought, like, "Oh, it's this one." Okay, well, we'll get through it. Um, but yeah, then I found myself just enjoying the the gosh darn heck out of it. Yeah, and and there's actually quite a bit here that kickstarts stuff that's going down the road. I mean, the minute uh, sh- the minute Stephen agreed to go with Marcus to down below, and then they start going down, and they do the rigmarole about whether or not to get into Duncan's quarters, and I'm just like, oh god, that's right when they travel together to Mars, and they're <laughs> yes, you yes, know, yes. And, and they're masquerading as a you know married same sex couple as they go and <laughs> uh, talk to the Mars Revolution, uh, and that glorious team up starts here. They are a great double act, and this is the beginning of it, and I. I don't know that it would have happened if they didn't pull it off so well on the soundstage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I found myself in pre-spoiler territory when I was talking about these two characters together. I was like, okay, 
I should probably, you know, backpedal it just a little bit or at least explain why I am loving it so much in this episode specifically, Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to oversell it and, you know, make people think that there was something really interesting coming, even though there is. But you don't you don't necessarily need to to dip into the future to talk about why they make such a good pairing, because it really is all right in front of you here in this episode. Mm hmm. Something else that leaped out at me uh, after listening to Corwin's little mini speech of, you know, we we have to follow orders, we have to follow the chain of command. And I'm like, now, wait a minute, one, two, three episodes from now, when they turn to you and ask you after they've declared independence, are you OK? You're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, he, that is such a great moment. And it only exists because of exogenesis. Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Sheridan says, okay, if you don't feel like you can be here, clear the bridge. And some of the staff do, but Corwin doesn't. And then she asks, are you okay? And he nods and he says, I'm surprised, but yeah. And that is so and he's good. Also it one of, pays he's off one of the ones, this episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's one of the ones who removes the uniform later. He doesn't wear one of the, the Black Army of Light uniforms, but he takes off the Earth Force uniform and continues to do his job. So... Yeah, and it, of course it leads to eventually he taking over the Ivanova position in season five. It 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 works so well. Yep. The the one thing that I think I'm not going to say it doesn't work, but the the one thing that I shake my head at is the way in this episode that Ivanova goes about. You know, she's supposed to feel him out and find out if yeah. he. You know, like and she she asks him direct questions that he cannot possibly give her the answer she wants to because. He just got promoted. He's being talked Mm -hmm. to by his boss. If she says, you know, how do you feel about breaking the rules? You know, how do you feel about disobeying a command? What are you supposed to say to your boss? There's like, even if he didn't feel that way, he he Mm -hmm. has to answer that way. She and and it makes sense because Ivanova is a forthright, direct person. So, of course, she's going to she's going to ask that Mm -hmm. way. But it makes more sense for somebody who's maybe a little bit better at at sidling up to the truth and sidling up to questions and, and, you know, feeling somebody out from a psychological. Uh, I'm not quite sure I agree with that, because uh, at several points during the season, we get to talk about these are illegal orders and resisting orders that are go against the constitution and things like that so given that it's only a 45 minute episode and that's kind of a truncated scene i think i i think i agree that uh, you know susan could have been more delicate but mm-hmm. i think that uh corwin could have found ways to answer that question that would have been that if that ivanova would have felt more confident in and would have been more palatable I, and all that yeah I, maybe i think for me what it shows is just along with him you know buying the roses and misinterpreting what she's asking and all that i think it just sort of presents us that corwin at this point is still kind of a naive and experienced young man you know he mm-hmm. i don't think has had to think yet about would he have to disobey you know, orders from a chain of command that contradict the Constitution. He, he just genuinely has not been in this situation yet. Apparently, they don't, you know, they haven't been teaching this kind of thing in army school. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But I, I think that fits in with his character to answer that way at this point in time, just because, you know, he hasn't had the experience that Ivanova has had at this point. Yeah, and yeah. so Ivanova and Sheridan are not ev- evaluating him as a potential traitor or as, you know, uh, a, a, a night watch in sheep's clothing. They're just 
they don't know which way he's going to go because he's just not seasoned enough. I think that's mm. what they were looking for, and they didn't find it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Something else, of course, um, that we touched on in uh, the first half is the fact that we now know that Marcus is interested in Susan, and for whatever <laughs> reason, Susan is leery of Marcus. And, of course, this is the beginning of the sort of <laughs> – what's the what's the term? It's not exactly opposite lovers. Yeah, star cross doesn't work yet. Um, opposites attract yeah. doesn't quite work because Susan's not attracted mm-hmm. yet. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the beginning of their somewhat stormy relationship that you know <laughs> yeah. never quite comes to fruition, of course, because yeah, contract negotiations. <laughs> yeah, but um, but um, but yeah, we're seeing the beginnings of you know the fact that you know having you know Susan's all of Susan's romantic interactions to date have shown her getting burned um whether it was her old flame who was now a traitor of some sort and of course i've forgotten the exact episode and the exact plot line um Mm -hmm. and then of course her you know and talia growing closer only for talia to uh get mime wiped and go away and turn into control so you know it's going to take susan a very long time to even think about somebody romantically and of course with marcus she hasn't even gotten to the point where she can trust him yet so yeah. he's got a very long fight on his hands mm-hmm. uh i mean he's going to make an effort next season mm-hmm. to i mean next not next season next episode you know mm-hmm. uh the organizational chart gag is coming up and yes. and, and that is a um a break a bit of a breakthrough yeah, and that is that is uh, and, and that's sort of built up in this episode. You know, she she opens up the episode by saying she doesn't know where he fits in. He doesn't wear a uniform. Um, she will say that again directly to him next time, and then um, and then he'll he'll try to break the ice with her with the org chart gag. And you know, this is another example of how this season is so amazingly consistent. And uh, it's such a blessing to have a season that was designed to be written by one guy. There are no fears of cancellation and having to rush things. You know, this, this season is so well paced. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that, particular character through line is um is really well served by these episodes being together yep i'm loving it (laughs) the only other things i could think of as far as uh going towards the future um we noticed that at the moment things are semi calm around the station so we don't have much sign of steven needing stems and therefore he's you know showing himself very professionally he's doing his job well everything's he's got control at the moment which you know i think helps show you know that that his um that his addiction problem is directly tied into just how much is piled upon him um and when things get worse down the road they um declare independence from earth and suddenly they can't get supplies from earth and things go to hell in a handbasket and that's when he his addiction winds up um eating him alive yeah, that's true. I did. I did note the absence of any any nod to that part of the uh, the thing. Like, I actually wondered uh, when Marcus first came in to ask him to come along. I wondered if he was going to say, "Well, I don't have much time, but but okay, you know, I'll meet you in the Zocalo in ten minutes, and then stim up in order to be able to make it mm-hmm. through that." But but no, they there was even a line at the you know the very beginning 
uh, with somebody toasting in Earhart saying, you know, let's uh, to, to, to tomorrow being as calm as today was or something and like that. That was Franklin so, yeah. himself. So it really yeah. is kind of a more mellow time than we've seen for a while. Yeah. And, and the only other thing is, of course, we never, ever hear about the Vindrizzi ever again. <laughs> yeah, well, they're I leaving, think though, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But still, it might have. I don't remember, but I don't think they're brought up in. Um, and of course, I can't remember the title. Deconstruction of Falling Stars, the one where they right. go a million years in the future. Yeah, you know, you see some dark ages and the Rangers trying to help. You know, pull society back into back to technology. That you know, that seems like that would have been a good dark age for the Vendrizzi to show up and, and do something and help, but I don't remember there being any references about that. Yeah, you'd think that the Vendrizzi having so much history, being the repositories of so much, and especially, you know, um, you know, in a, in advance of a dark age, you know, trying to get all that you'd think they'd know one or two useful things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did think about that, actually, you know, that they talk about, you know, at a time when everything falls apart and knowledge is lost and blah, 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 and that they need to be mm-hmm. hide. And I think, OK, well, I, you know, we've seen after that time on Earth. And and you're right. It is interesting that they are not mentioned as coming back. But maybe they do in, you know, we we get just such a, a tiny focused view of one person's struggle, basically, you know, with with his, his people uh on Earth after the the fall of everything, so to speak. So maybe there are Vindrizzi around, and they just you know haven't haven't gotten to that dude yet. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, it's it's all sort of of a piece uh, for all of the intricate planning. You know, the Great Machine, the Techno Mages, the mm-hmm. um, Brother Theo's monks, uh, the Vindrizzi. You know, there are all kinds of things here that. You could do something with, you could work them back into the five-year arc if you really wanted to, um, and um, they would make sense in one way or another, but, you know, there's only so much you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess too much of it and you get MacGuffins. Yep. Well, too much, mm-hmm. it, too much of it and you don't have time for episodes like, like Exogenesis. Very true. Indeed. Indeed, and we like episodes like, as it turns out, we like episodes like Exogenesis. (laughs) Turns out, turns out we do. (laughs) Okay. Um, Have either of you got anything else to say before before we sign off? I'm just amazed that we were able to make our way through the spoiler section without me just sort of sitting, giggling over messages from Earth all the way through it and ignoring the episode. <laughs> oh, well, you'll be doing that until we record the episode. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Shannon, can we watch it once we're done recording? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to show it to Steven right away. I want to wait as long as possible because T- I know when we finish it, he's going to be like, <laughs> let's watch the next, next one. Next, next, give me another hit, give me another hit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you need to you need to uh, mentally set aside about three hours just in case. I Yeah, that's not a bad idea. He may just decide we need to plow forward and, you know, who am I to say no? The Holy Trilogy <laughs> is coming up, listeners. <laughs> Yay! And, you know, um, I will say, I, 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 we've talked about this perhaps a little bit before, but... If you are interested in evangelizing Babylon 5 to your friends and you're not super fussed about making sure that earlier episodes are spoiled, um, I have I have myself handed this upcoming trilogy of episodes to non-fans and they've been like, oh, wow, this is really good. 
and um, mm-hmm. so this is not a this is not a bad triptych of episodes to turn somebody into a Babylon Five fan. I'm just saying. Yep. Indeed. E. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Wait for it, dear. <laughs> I'll be good. Then uh, we thank everyone, as always, for listening as we squee and pull apart and otherwise dissect uh, Babylon 5 uh, going through our rewatch. Uh, once again, next uh, not next time, Messages from Earth, the beginning of the big trilogy um, that Chip will be at the helm for. Uh, please come talk to us at uh, b5audioguide.com or find us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5AudioGuide, and we will happily uh, chat back with you as much as we can. Uh, And until next time, this is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you've been listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5.